let's move on. Listeners, at this point, you and I will now ease into our featured story. However, as much as I would like for you to listen, I am first going to tell you a little bit about a few things in the story so you can decide for yourself if you want to continue to listen or not. I will start by saying that there are no murders and no dead bodies in this story. I thought I'd mention that first, just in case that is where you draw the line. (laughs) I will also tell you that there is probably nothing in this episode that would be scary for children. Other than learning that there are some people in the world who are dishonest. Now, listeners, with all of that in mind, I'm going to say one thing. Just so you have the big picture as to this story. It's kind of like this. Have you ever seen the inside of a watch? Well, of course you have. But, unless you happen to be a watchmaker or a watch expert, I'm sure it was a confusing thing to look at. However, to a trained and careful eye, the mechanism is the exact opposite of confusing. It has meaning, purpose, and direction. It is a well-ordered apparatus. Now, suppose we examine the inside of the criminal mind. I don't mean the kind whose crime is motivated by passion or some random circumstance. I am referring to the ardent type, the criminal by choice and profession. To the law-abiding citizen, such a mind is a combination of uncontrolled ego, dark frustrations, and barbaric or greedy impulses. But, in reality, there is usually meaning in it, and purpose, and direction. However, unlike the watch, there are often flaws in the brain and personality of the criminal, and 
course, we take it for granted that a person who knows about watches can put them together so that they work perfectly. But how easy is it for a person who knows about crime to commit a perfect crime? A watchmaker must possess limitless patience and the eye of an eagle. His hand must be steady and his fingers nimble and be prepared to rectify his mistakes. A criminal must possess the eye of a cobra and the conscience of a wolf. The hand of the criminal must be firm, but sometimes it must be accompanied by a voice as soft as a honeybee's flutter. And finally, he or she must be prepared to pay for any mistakes. Our featured story on this episode revolves around two female criminals in the 1880s. Specifically, in 1887, in New York City, their names were Sophie Lyons and Carrie Morris. Both of these two women had a long history of criminal activity. Carrie and Sophie were professional swindlers and con artists. Sophie was the daughter of immigrants from England. Both of her parents had lengthy careers as criminals in Baltimore and New York. Her father was a safecracker and thief. Her mother supplemented the family income as a shoplifter and pickpocket. She taught Sophie these same skills beginning at age three. And so, by the time she became a teenager, Sophie was an expert. 
Thank you. 
Contrast. 
yourself from chapter four of her book. So, for a little while, just pretend that I am Sophie, sharing a few memories with you. And now, listeners, with all of that having been said, here we go. Sophie Lyons, bank president. Can you imagine it? Strange as it may seem, I actually held such a position in New York City for several months, and the experience proved one of the most surprising in my whole career. Although, this venture in high finance yielded me only a bare living and nearly landed me in a prison cell. It gave me a remarkable insight into the methods used by clever women to swindle the public and showed me how these women are able to carry through schemes which the most skillful men in the underworld would never dare undertake. All of this happened in the days before I had won the wide reputation which my crimes later gave me. I had come to New York with very little money and with no definite plans for getting any. My husband was serving a term in prison, and I was temporarily alone and on my own resources. Walking up Broadway one day, I came face to face with Carrie Morris, a woman I knew by reputation as one of the most successful swindlers in the business. Friends of mine had often pointed her out to me, but we had never been introduced, and I had no idea that she knew me. I was therefore greatly surprised when she stepped up to me and called me by name. Why, Sophie Lyons, how do you do? She said with the well-bred cordiality, which was such an important part of her stock in trade. Come in and have some tea with me. As we entered a well-known restaurant, I noted with envious eyes the evidences of prosperity which Carrie flaunted from the long ostrich bloom which dripped from her Parisian hat to the shiny tips of her high-heeled shoes. She was dressed in the height of fashion and expense. At her throat sparkled a valuable diamond brooch, and when she removed her gloves, 
necessary for you to know anything about running banks in order to hold the position I have in mind. All that you have to do is follow my instructions and you'll soon be wearing as many diamonds as I am. A half hour before, I would have thought it the height of absurdity for anyone to suggest my engaging in a wildcat banking scheme with Carrie Morse. Yet now, I saw it spellbound by her magnetic power, patiently listening to the details which were all Greek to me, and getting from every word she uttered renewed confidence in the reality of the financial castles in the air, which were to make us both into millionaires. What a businesswoman Carrie Morse would have made. With her personal charms, her eloquence, and her quick ingenuity, she had no need to depend on crime for a living. She could have accumulated a fortune in any legitimate line of work. Nevertheless, the upshot of it all was that I agreed, heart and soul, to the plan by Gary Morse for taking a shortcut to fortune. First, she excited my avarice by her stories of the ease with which money could be made. Then, she dazed me by her apparent familiarity with the intricacies of finance. And thus, I had become as credulous as any farmer is when he comes to the city and is coaxed into exchanging his few hard-earned dollars for ten times their value in phony goods. I accompanied Carrie to the door of her hotel. The fact that she was staying at the fashionable Brunswick while I was finding it hard work to raise the price of a room at a modest hotel farther downtown proved another argument in favor of my following the leadership of my new-found friend. Meet me at nine o'clock tomorrow, Carrie said, and then she gave me an address on West 23rd Street. I was on hand a few minutes before the appointed hour. The address 
in 
investigate and assure yourself as to just what profits we are really paying on investments. Perhaps you would like to see and talk with one of our customers who has done so well with our investments that she has taken an interest in our bank. I'm sure you'd be interested in talking with Mrs. Rigsby. The style in which I lived on Fifth Avenue left no doubt of my wealth, and with the help of Carrie, I soon had a glib and convincing story to tell of my previous poverty and the steps I had taken to reach my present prosperity. Of course, I explained, I took no active part in the affairs of the bank. I allowed the use of my name as president and permitted Mrs. Morris to refer prospective investors to me, merely because I was so well satisfied with the way that my own investments had turned out, and felt a philanthropic desire to share my good fortune with other women. Business increased rapidly as growing crowds of women came in reply to the glowing advertisements written by Carrie. Many of them would hand over their money right away in exchange for a handful of the crinkly stock certificates which filled a whole room in the rear of the bank. These certificates were printed in all the colors of the rainbow. For, as Carrie explained, some of the ladies prefer green, some black, some blue, and so on. Carrie was jubilant. She kept me liberally supplied with money for clothes and the heavy expenses of my apartment. But when I asked her about a further share of the profits, she said, Sophie, you are as ignorant as a newborn babe in regard to business methods. It's always customary to leave all the money in a new business until the end of six months. Then, we'll divide what we've made, turn the bank over to someone else, and go to Europe for a long rest. I had my doubts about the truth of this, but as I was making a good living with little effort, and had nothing better in sight just then, I determined to continue under the leadership of Carrie Morse. She continually reassured me by insisting that what we were doing was just as legitimate 
team of Mrs. Morris was an excellent one. It would be much wiser for a woman in her circumstances to keep her money in the savings bank, and I made her promise that she would put it back there at once. Then I put on my hat and coat and hurried over to the bank to see Carrie Morris. As usual, Carrie was in the midst of an enthusiastic description of her stocks, while a long line of women anxiously awaited their turn with her. I took her by the arm, led her into one of the private offices, and shut the door. Carrie Morse, this sort of business has got to stop, I said with all the emphasis that I could give. I'm willing to help you swindle women who can afford to lose the money, but I positively will not have any part in taking the bread out of the mouths of poor widows, like the one you just sent over to me. I'll starve before I do that, or go back to robbing banks or picking pockets. There, there, she said soothingly. Don't get excited. Perhaps I did make a mistake in encouraging the poor widow. But this is a business where you can't help being deceived. Sometimes, often the women who bleed poverty the hardest and dress the poorest really have the most money in a way. I'll give you my word of honor, though, that I won't accept any money from that widow, even if she tries to force it on me. Somewhat mollified at this, I started back home to renew my interviews with the prospective investors who came daily in crowds. For several weeks, things went on as before. Then, one day, I chanced to meet the poor widow who had so excited my sympathies. To my surprise, she confessed that she had finally yielded to the lures of the advertisements of Mrs. Morse and had given her $500 for some shares in a bogus Western oil company. I was indignant that Carrie disregarded her promise and I set out at once to demand an explanation. But as I was approaching the bank, my attention was attracted by some unusual excitement just outside the entrance. Sending trouble 
Thanks. 
investors and creditors in front of the closed bank. Gary Morse was never caught or punished for the ladies' bank swindle, which the newspapers later said must have netted her at least $50,000. Many years later, I ran into her in Chicago, where she was operating a matrimonial agency, which was almost as crooked as a bank had been. She never mentioned the banking scheme, nor offered me my share of the profits. However, since I was prosperous then, I never asked her for it. Gary Morris was a swindler to her dying day, and served many long prison terms. As she grew old, it took all the money she could make to keep out of jail and she finally died in poverty. Sadly, with all her cleverness, she never seemed able to see what expensive folly it was to waste her really brilliant abilities in a life of crime. This was my first experience with clever women swindlers. In the years that followed, I was surprised to learn, to my sorrow, that the standards of good faith which are maintained among men of the underworld do not hold good among most women criminals. And that is the end of our story, as told in the words of Sophie Lyons. So, listeners, guess what? This is our second episode in a row in which the featured story has no mystery to solve. But, just like the previous episode, there are a couple of small mysteries that are tightly wrapped around the featured story. Now, first, as you know, the featured story was written by Sophie Lyons. It was a chapter in her autobiography published in 1913, and her description of the chain of events is accurate in regard to the swindle, except for a few minor details, but those are mostly, but not entirely, in regard to the aftermath. Sophie wrote the book, when she was 65 or 66. However, 
days, she was apparently a very beautiful girl. Well, that is according to the standards of beauty of the 19th century. But unfortunately, because that is the way that Sylvie wanted people to remember her, she is very careful in her book to never mention specific years or even the particular decade of any incident she describes. So, for example, she uses such phrases as quote-unquote several years ago instead of any specific time period. And this created enormous frustration in the beginning of the research for this episode. However, after a lot of effort, I was finally able to track down the year and the details of this story. And that is when I discovered the two main reasons why it is difficult to find information about this incident. First, for some unknown reason, the newspapers tended to describe the scheme as a stock swindle rather than a bank swindle. Despite the fact that the stocks and everything else connected to the fraud were perpetrated under the disguise of a banking institution. I mean, even the women who were buying stocks or depositing their money thought that they were dealing with a bank. So, it's unclear to me why the newspapers tended to avoid describing the scheme as a bank swindle. Second, I was wondering why I could find almost nothing on the internet when I searched for the name Carrie Morse. But eventually, I discovered that Carrie Morse was an alias for a woman named Marion LaDouche. Well, that was her name after she married a man named Royal LaDouche. And they were a perfect match for each other. Since Royal LaDouche was also a professional con artist and thief, but with a twist, he was a professional gigolo and playboy. He evidently had some sort of special skill of being able to sweep rich women off of their feet and then grab every penny of their money that he could get his hands on. The marriage had taken place only a few 
newspapers, the reporters almost always referred to her by the name La Touche, her married name, because that was the common practice of newspapers at the time. So, her alias, Carrie Morris, was almost never mentioned. And in the years that followed, Marion LaDouche was the name she most typically used. Although, whenever she felt a need to use an alias, she would invent whatever fictitious name she felt was the best fit in any given situation, which is something that she had been doing anyway ever since she was a girl in her teens. It appears that Sophie Lyons was unaware of the fact that the name Carrie Morse was an alias. Or, if she did know, she purposely left it out of the story, probably because she didn't think it was important enough to mention. Now, listeners, as I mentioned earlier, Sophie gave a very accurate description of the women's bank swindle. However, she got a few things wrong concerning the aftermath. Sophie was mistaken in regard to her statement that Carrie Morris or Marion LaDouche, whichever you prefer, was never arrested in regard to the swindle. In fact, she was arrested and it was very soon afterward. But the charges were dropped almost as fast. The ladies who had been swindled ultimately decided that they did not want to be dragged through the shame of a trial. After all, they were already being ridiculed in the newspapers. For example, the New York Times called them, quote, a bunch of silly women, unquote, who were foolish enough or greedy enough to believe that a bank, any bank, would give them a 15 to 25% return on their investment. In fact, it looks like the only woman who made any money from the scheme was Carrie Morris, aka Marion LaDouche, because she ended up with $50,000, which would be $1.3 million in the present day. However, as Sophie correctly recalled, Mrs. LaDouche somehow managed to fritter it all away, despite being almost a genius in regard to financial matters. 
was incorrect in her statement that Mrs. LaDouche, aka Carrie Morris, had passed away sometime prior to 1913. In fact, Thank you. 
Shay then pled guilty to the misdemeanor. He thereupon gave her the choice of either accepting the offer of hospitality by the Salvation Army or to serve a sentence of six months in jail with a fine of $500. Mrs. LaDouche said that she preferred the Salvation Army. The judge granted her request on condition of good behavior during the time that she was within their care and custody. And now, listeners, I'm sad to say that there does not seem to be any further information available in regard to Marion LaDouche. She is not listed in the U.S. Census for 1940. Hence, it is very likely that she passed away sometime between 1931 and 1940. However, if any listener might possibly have additional information, I would love to have it. Just email whispertruestories at gmail.com. And now, moving on. Listeners, as you know, Halloween is around the corner. It's a time of year when literally everyone begins having thoughts about spooky things like ghosts, haunted houses, disembodied voices, witches, monsters, demons, Ouija boards, weird dreams that come true, encounters with dead people. <laughs> it gives me chills just thinking about it. <sighs> to include your name. And, by the way, 
in 
innocent people. 
please do me a favor and go onto iTunes and post a five-star review for the Whispered True Stories podcast. Because not only is it a nice thing to do, but it will help give the show more visibility and it will help give it a boost as far as the rankings on iTunes. Now, one more thing. If you have any thoughts or comments, please feel free to email them. WhisperTrueStories at gmail.com You can also comment via Twitter regarding either me or the podcast. The Twitter handle is at WhisperTrue. Now, once again, thank you. A very big thank you to Kristen Peterson, the latest contributor to the Patreon page for this podcast. <laughs>